Well, we have a special guest. If you guys didn't hear, um, I have gotten the privilege of getting to know Tad, Pastor Tad from Calvary Chapel Ellensburg over this last year. He, he's been, uh, or he's known our church for a while. They've been coming here ever since we were back in the warehouse when they come down here on vacation. Um, but through the Rashanes who have known him for a while, uh, they kind of recommended them. His wife's been teaching at the, uh, women's retreat this weekend. And then I got to hang out with Tad personally at a pastor's conference earlier this year and just loved his spirit for the Lord and invited him to come share the word with us. So Pastor Ch- uh, Tad is going to be coming up here right now, and I'm going to turn the mic over to him. Good morning. How are all you guys doing? Awesome. A couple familiar faces right here from Ellensburg, from the Bible College. Uh, great to, to see all you guys out here. How fun is that to have some young folks in love with the Lord serving at a church? Just amazing. And uh, like Chris said, my wife has been sharing at the retreat, and they're the ones that are really getting a treat. My, my wife is gold, man. If you, if you have met her, if you have a chance, she is fantastic. She is definitely the better half of this uh, thing we got going on. She's a real blessing. But I, I'm the one being blessed here because as Chris said, uh, this has been a home away from home for us is Coastline. And we came, I still very clearly remember the first time that my wife and I visited Coastline. It was uh, back in the warehouse. We sat about two-thirds of the way up on the left-hand side. And I still remember the passage so clearly that Pastor Jason was teaching out of. It was Exodus chapter 3. And uh, just an important time for us. And I remember it so clearly. Uh, there was another time that we visited on a Wednesday night, just a couple years later. That was back in 2003, if I remember correctly. The first time, almost 20 years ago, was the first time that uh, we were at Coastline. And then a couple years after that, uh, from what, if I remember correctly, you guys had just gotten this building and everything was facing this way. And uh, we sat like right about here facing that way. And uh, we happened to meet the Ruchanes at that time who were moving to our neck of the woods. We were from Linden. We lived in Linden, Washington at that time, just north of Bellingham. And uh, they were moving up there. And so we created this relationship with them. And then uh, another Sunday, probably about five or six years ago, uh, we were driving out here, making that drive. I was reminded this morning of how long that can be. Uh, but we were driving out here, and on the way, my wife received this call from a family member with some really heavy, heavy, hard stuff. And it was it was really painful. My wife was super shook as we were even driving, and we sat right over there, about three rows back. And the Lord met us. And ministered to us in such an incredible way. We heard this worship song that we know now, but we hadn't heard then. It was the first time we had heard it. And and it was exactly what we needed to hear. And we still, to this day, we thank God for meeting us. Sitting right over there through the worship that happened here. And so the Lord's been using Coastline uh, the extent of that is far reaching past, uh, past the border of Oregon and certainly up into Washington. So just uh, some important, powerful moments for us connected to this fellowship. And I'm so glad uh, for what the Lord has done here. But it's been an interesting road. Just, uh, by way of introduction, introducing myself a little bit, uh, my wife Charity and I met in uh, 95 and uh, she was kind and she was funny and she was gorgeous, you know. Uh, she was also the, the sweetest, most innocent, committed Mormon girl you had ever met. And uh, uh, just, she was, if you think of like the quintessential good girl, Mormon girl, that was my wife. She graduated from BYU Junior. No parties, no swearing, no sex, no drinking, no smoking up, n- none of the things that I was into. And that is why... When I met her, she wanted zero to do with me. And so, uh, cause that describes my whole life. But I was, as young men often are, persistent. And so, uh, I asked her out every time, she was uh, serving tables, and I asked her out every time I saw her. And, uh, was getting shot down every single time. But I was persistent, as I said, three months into this persistence, she agreed to go on one date. To get me off her back, you know, his stuff. So he'll quit asking. Well, 
I made that one date worth everything. I worked, I worked hard for this, okay? We're, we're, we're spending a day. We're going hiking. I took her up to Canada. I mean, we made a day out of it. She probably felt a little scared at that point, right? I'm taking her to a foreign country, but, uh, we, we went on one date. One date turned into nine months of dating and, and her and I, and again, that's worthy of another discussion, but her and I at separate times had this pretty radical conversion story, both from really from polar opposites, because I was incredibly immoral and she was extremely moral. In fact, it's funny now, uh, now it's funny. We planted the church in Ellensburg in 2009 and church planting is tough stuff. We had four or five families there originally. And every Sunday morning, uh, I'm out there in the back of my car. I got a sandwich board with the church name and number website on it. And I'm putting it out, you know, and, uh, uh, month after month, Sunday after Sunday, I'm putting out this sandwich board, hoping that someone sees it and stops in and, and visit, visits us. And so, uh, and also that first couple years is the church's phone number was our home number, right? We didn't have a physical location. So I'm at work one day and charity gets a phone call from someone who saw our signs and they say, Hey, can you tell me? about your church. And so, uh, she's, she's telling them, you know, we teach verse by verse, we do all these things. And then she, he's like, well, who's the, who's the pastor? And he's like, well, it's Tad Skeffer. And he's like, well, that's a very unique name. And she's like, okay, yeah, sure. She's like, he goes, I knew a Tad Skeffer back home and there is no way that guy pastors a church. So it must be a unique name, but there must be two of them because that guy was a heathen partier, got in fights all the time, you know, and Charity's, well, that is my husband, you know, and he is the pastor of the church. It was embarrassing at the time that that's who I was, but who I was then compared to who I was even at that moment created an opportunity as it always does, to share about what God had done in my life, in our life. And so Charity and I love to tell our story. I got two of my four kids right over there. Uh, My kids are 23, 21, 21, almost 21, and 19. And uh, it's to the point now where if we have guests over or something, they're like, tell us, how did you guys meet? They'll ask Charity and I, and the kids will go, I'm out. You know, I've heard this a hundred times. Or uh, every once in a while, like, can we tell the story? I'm like, by all means. You know, they've heard it so much, they'll tell the story. But uh, it, it creates an opportunity to share what God has done. Our testimonies tell our story of how God has worked in our life. And he's changing us. He's conforming us into his image. And so if I could have you this morning, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians Three is an account of Paul's testimony of what God had done in him and what God was continuing to do in him. Now, a lot of times we think that stories maybe like mine or my wife's, those, those really radical, the good, the good testimonies are the ones that are extremely radical, right? When someone's life is so dramatically changed that they were slinging drugs or something, you know, or that person, well, that's a good testimony. But it's important for us to remember that every single life that has been redirected from hell to heaven is a miracle, an absolute miracle. It is no more difficult For the Lord to take someone who sat in a pew every day of their life and to bring them and set them in the, in the seated in the heavenlies than to take someone who's in the down and out and who's a gutter. It's all a miracle. It's all a miracle. And so whenever that happens, man, and someone, uh, it's just as dramatic when someone has been sitting in a pew, as I said, and they've decided that this is the time. I, I want to live fully for the Lord. I'm tired of just going with the flow. I'm tired of just drifting along. I want to commit my life fully to the Lord. That is just as much of a miracle. And I hope today that we would recommit that. That sitting here today at Coastline from a guest speaker or whatever, you know, that the Lord would move, that he'd move among us. That his spirit, you know, just as he moved above the waters at creation, 
would move above us as we open up his word and that lives would be recommitted to what he wants to do. And so Paul's testimony isn't about how he used to, you know, be pushing drugs or any of that. That's not his story. The apostle Paul's story is how he is someone who did everything right and still realized it's not enough. I still need grace. I still need Jesus in my life. And so to set the context, we're going to be working through most of chapter 3. We're going to be focusing kind of on the center part of it. But to set the context, the reason why he's sharing his story here in Philippians chapter 3, it's because that's exactly what the church in Philippi needed to hear at this time. You see, there were those who, when Paul would go, he'd plant a church, he'd minister for a period of time, and immediately following, there's those come into the church and say, okay, he's gone, that's great, what he's talking about, Jesus, but what you need to do is you need to start following rules. You need, if you really love God, he's talking about grace, that's, yeah, okay, but if you really, really love God, you're gonna do X, Y, and Z, and this is gonna prove that you love God. And that, that, those folks don't, didn't just exist in the first century and follow Paul into churches. Those folks are still around. You're not a real committed Christian without following this set of rules. So look at us. Look at our group. See how many rules we follow? You can tell we're committed by how many rules we have. And so the church in Philippi, they're being influenced by those who are saying, you gotta follow these rules, man. And that's, that's, so they've got this heavy works trip that's being laid on them. And so in these first few verses, Paul's going to explain why he's sharing his story. And so pick up with me. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Have joy in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So the first thing this morning to take note of that he mentions about sharing how God changed his life. He says, there's no trouble for me. Literally, maybe if you, if you had a, a something in your margin, it's like, I'm not slow to do this. It's, there's eagerness here. There's joy. I, I want to share with you about who Jesus is, what he's done in my life. It's a joy to share what God has done in my life. I'm rejoicing in what God has done. And notice he says, it's safe for you. It's safe because they're putting this works trip on you. They're leading you away from grace. And so they're saying, you don't satisfy God unless you follow these rules, unless you wear these certain things, unless you, you know, uh, eat this diet. They're putting this trip on them. And so he says, for you, it's safe. And my opportunity to share with you is a chance to warn you. It's a joy for me. It's no trouble for me. It's a joy. I enjoy sharing my story with you. And sharing my story is a warning for you. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, look out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Three, look out, look out, look out. He wants their attention. Uh, the New King James says, beware. Look out for the Look out for these dogs, these evildoers. These who, notice, mutilate the flesh. That word is only, in the Greek, used this one time in the New Testament. And it means the, the cutting of meat. It means butchering. That's what this word means. But Paul is using it to describe circumcision. Paul says, look out. There are those putting this legalistic trip on you that, that being more Jewish would be a benefit to you in your walk with God. And so Paul says, look out. Beware. You don't need to get caught up in all of that stuff. You don't want to get sidetracked. Like you got to go back to your Jewish roots, right? Oh, that's so prevalent today. That's hitting everywhere. In fact, I have a brother that's 10 years older than me. This is where he is. Gotta go back to the Jewish roots. Man, that's out there. Paul's been fighting this for 2,000 years. He says, you don't need to go back there. Why? Verse three, he says, for we are the circumcision or the true circumcision who worship by the spirit of God. They have this outward thing going and they're using it to substitute for the real thing. 
It's like my wedding ring. I have this wedding ring on here, right here. My ring says, Pastor Tad is married. And even if I wasn't married, that's what this ring would tell you. That ring would say, oh, he must be married. But the ring doesn't make me married. The, the relationship that I'm in with my wife, that covenant relationship with my wife is what makes us married. And so those who are insisting on this outward thing, insisting on circumcision, they're just wearing the ring, so to speak, but they're not married. They don't have this actual relationship with God through Jesus. And so he says, don't get, don't get all caught up in that. Don't focus on the outward. And, and he says, we're the true circumcision. That, that's us, as opposed to those who are lying on the outward. And then he adds halfway through, through verse three, he says, we worship, uh, we worship by the spirit of God and glory or rejoice in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh. Our ability, our nature, he says, it's not worthy of confidence. You can't put your trust in it. Your ability, your achievements, what you've done in the past, it can't be trusted. You will never do enough to rely on that that's going to be enough to please God. There's no confidence in the flesh. Their dependency on circumcision means they're not depending on Jesus. When you're placing your confidence, your dependency in something else, this is going to make me right with God. That means you're not, in turn, putting that confidence and that trust in Jesus. He said, but that's not true of you. Don't get caught up in that. That's not true of you. We worship by the Spirit of God, he says. Therefore, we glory or we rejoice in We worship Jesus Christ. He's done the work. And when we share our story, sometimes you'll hear someone sharing their story. Maybe it's a little radical story, right? And it sounds more like they're proud of who they used to be than in fact what the Lord has done. But when we share our story, that bragging, that rejoicing, as it says here in the ESV, that glorying is in Jesus. Look what he's done. That's why I'm sharing this story is to point to how good God is. And so he says, don't think that that being more Jewish is a benefit to you. Rejoice in Jesus. That's where it's at. It's all about Jesus. And Paul says, now trust me, I know. I know firsthand. And in, in verse four, he now begins to tell his story. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. Every story, every story in this room begins with a history. And Paul, he looks back on his life and he says, if anybody could trust in their own natural ability and in the flesh, if anyone could learn, earn God's favor and acceptance by following rules and being religious, it was me. I'm the one. And he goes, check out my resume, and he lists off seven attributes here. First, he says, verse five, circumcised on the eighth day. They want you to get circumcised. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm not some recent convert. I didn't come into this new in the game. I was raised following the letter of the law. In fact, before I could make a willful decision to follow rules myself, my parents were doing it for me. I was circumcised on the eighth day because... Number two, as are the people of Israel. They're saying you're not Jewish enough. I'm Jewish through and through. I was born into a good family. Abraham's blood runs through my veins. So much so, in fact, he says next, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. They want you to take it back to these Jewish roots. Man, I could take it all the way back to Jacob's beloved son, Benjamin. That's that's my family tradition. That's my family history. And then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I'm not only of Israeli stock nationally, I'm a Hebrew culturally, right? And those things are different. I'm, I'm 100% Dutch. I know that there's shades of Ben Linden. I don't know if anybody else has been to Linden. It is a big Dutch community. There's a windmill there. We're into tulips and dairy cows and all that stuff. And I grew up on a dairy farm. I'm 100% Dutch, but I'll tell you what, I've never owned a pair of wooden shoes 
and I've, you don't want to see me clomp and dance. That's not going to happen, okay? I'm Dutch, but that's, that, that's not who I am. I'm not Dutch like this. And that's what Paul says. I've never been Hellenized. I've never, I'm a, I'm a Jew that lives as a Jew. I, I, I went to the Jewish schools. I listened and followed the Jewish texts and the customs. I am Jew, not only ethnically, but culturally, I am a Hebrew. And then he goes on to say, number five, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, sometimes we hear the word Pharisee and we just almost, we bristle like right away. Because as we read through the gospels, these were the religious leaders that had the confrontations. But Pharisees, and you could think of who this might be in our day, Pharisees were the most moral, the most disciplined people in society. They were the most committed to scripture. They followed the letter of the law. They followed the days, the diet, all of that. And they were looked up and esteemed by everyone. And Paul says, I was right there. A Pharisee when it comes to the law. Next, number six, verse six. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And you might think, well, that's a strange thing to put on your resume that you persecuted people. But these guys talk that are influencing the Philippians. They're talking about being truly zealous. If you're truly zealous and on fire is maybe a term we'd use. If you're on fire for the Lord, you're going to practice circumcision. That's what they'd say. Paul says, even when it comes to this, I outdid these Judaizers when it comes to zeal. I got so zealous, so on fire that I persecuted the church. The book of Acts tells us that he tore men and women from their houses for going against Jewish law. Paul says, that's how zealous I was. People from their houses. In fact, seven, number seven, he says, law blameless. Pharisees lived by a set of 613 commandments. And Paul here says, not braggingly, but I lived by all of them. No one could look at my life and say, he follows 612. He, he tried to follow all of them. Not that he was perfect, not that, but his life, what he's saying is by doing every single thing right the whole way through. That was my life. That's who I was. I was doing everything I could right all the time. Now, let's step back. We just worked through this pretty quickly, but let's make some application. What would this look like? For us today. If, if we had to come up with a spiritual resume that we can say, we've got some, I've got some confidence in my pedigree, in who I am. Maybe we'd say, I would, you know, I was from a respected religious home. We prayed before meals. I went to the VBSs. I, I, I had confirmation and communion and baptism. I, I stood up for social causes. Maybe I graduated from a cola. Who, who knows? You know, all these pedigree things. I went on missions trips. I dropped my money in the box week after week. I built homes for the, the poor. I fed people. We can do the exact same thing that Paul in his past was entrapped by. People do that all the time. We think because I have this history of doing really good things, I'm okay with God. Because I have this resume, look at all these things that I've done. Well, I'm I'm good. I'm a good person. God and I are pretty tight. Paul says, I can play this good person card all day long. I can write all the rest of you under the books when it comes to being a good person. And the thing is, I thought that was enough. I thought that would make me right with God. And so, because I thought that would make me right with God, guess what? That's what I trusted in. I depended on those things. But look at verse seven, but. Oh man, that's an important but in scripture. You should circle, underline, do whatever you have to. But I had all this going for me. All of these seven attributes, all these amazing things that I trusted in. But no one had a better history than me. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I want us to look at this verse from the New Living Translation. Check out this. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. I once thought these things were valuable, 
Now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Paul explained what he realized when he met Jesus on that Damascus road. I once thought that all these things, my resume, my pedigree, I thought that made me a good person. I thought my good works made me right with God, and it didn't. I jumped through all the hoops. I did all the things that were expected of me as a young person, followed the rules, but what I needed was Jesus. All those things that I, I was living for, all the pursuits of my life, to try to be right with God. All the respectable things, all the things that would move me ahead in the eyes of society, all these things that I considered assets. Now he says, I considered or I counted them loss. And this this is an accounting term. This is a banking term that he uses here. And he goes, now I have a new way of balancing the books. What I used to think of as an asset, this whole list of things, I now consider it a liability. I mean, financial people, maybe this helps you wrap your mind around what he's saying. I used to have this in the asset column, but now I realize, no, that is in the liability column because, he says, of Christ. Because everything I thought I knew about being right with God changed on the Damascus Road. It changed when Jesus grabbed a hold of my life. I was thinking everything was up to me when it came to being right with God. But it's all grace. It's all Jesus. It's all about what he has done. And so now verse eight, present tense. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. In his audit of life, as he looked back on all of these positive things, he realized all of it was a zero when it came to being right with God. Every single thing I could, I could say, here's a good thing. Nope, it's not. Well, here's a good thing that makes me right with God. No, it's not. Everything was like that. Can you imagine working for your employer, you know, for, for your whole life, and your employer says, yeah, I'm putting money away for you in your retirement. You know, we've got this matching thing going on. And so you're working hard, and you're breaking your back, and you're showing up nine to five or whatever, sun up to sundown every day, because someday you've got this nest egg coming, and you have worked hard for it, right? And you get to retirement age. And you're like, man, it's time to do some family planning. You think for yourself, I got this comfortable retirement ahead of me. I'm almost to the end of my my journey here. I'm going to take a cruise. I'm going to buy an RV. I'm going to take a trip abroad before it gets too late. And so you go in and you check the balance. I'm sorry, sir. That, That account is actually overdrawn. It's not that it's not even there. It's overdrawn. There's There's nothing in it. And you owe You've been working all this time for nothing. From those deposits, they came from a a closed account. You thought you had a deposit slip, they were withdrawals. Every religious thing, he says, I've ever done in my life, and I have all of them that you can think of. Every rule that I followed, that I thought, this is what's going to make me right with God. Every time I helped someone and I thought, oh, this is going to make God happy. Every one of those things that I did, he says, it's all rubbish. Man, the only time we hear rubbish now is if we're watching BBC or something, right? That's like an English word. It's trash, but more literally, what he's saying is it's dung. That's what the King James says here. I believe it's dung. It's manure. My righteousness, that which I depended on making me right with God, whatever that may be for you, what you think is making you right with God, he says, I realized that what I thought was making me right with God, that would make God happy, it has as much value as what's left on the street when the donkeys walk by. Everything I worked for, all my pursuits, all my good works, it's all rubbish. My righteousness is rubbish. He realized that every achievement he had, they don't have value. So it doesn't doesn't matter to me anymore because I found something that can't compare to that list that I can come up with, and it's knowing Jesus. That's what matters. Everything that this world has to offer in position, in power, 
in influence, in self-righteousness, in social causes, whatever that may be, is in the same category as manure compared to what I've gained in Jesus. This isn't so much, his point isn't just necessarily to show how, it's not to point to the rubbish, it's to point to Jesus. It's not that the rubbish in and of itself, it's not all those things in and of themselves are negative, not from a human perspective, but when I'm comparing who Jesus is and what he's done for me, it's trash. It's manure, it's garbage. Just depending upon myself and my past performance, being proud of my, my assets, being proud of my achievements, being proud of what I can offer religiously. It, once I start walking down that road, look what I've done. Look at all these accomplishments I have done. The problem is, is it gets me back to thinking it's up to me. The moment I start to say, look at what I have, I've done, I'm diminishing who Jesus is. And so I have to view it as, as rubbish. It's trash. So I count them as rubbish. And now Paul shares his present passion in order. He says that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, I had to get to a point as hard and as painful as that was, where I saw things the way they really are, as losses, as liabilities, as as dung. Because what they were, these achievements of mine, these good works, what they were is they were keeping me from being made right with God. Because those things don't make me right. But what makes me right before God is absolute righteousness. And that doesn't come from me trying hard. That doesn't come from me having a nice resume. It doesn't come from me pastoring a church or being a deacon or an elder or serving in the children's ministry or doing any of those things. Those things don't make me right with God. What makes me right is his righteousness. So all of that stuff, once I start to depend on that, man, I've got to see that that, that's worthless to me. It's not the right clothes, not the right days, not the right diet. What makes us right is Christ's righteousness on our behalf. And so the goal of Paul's life went from, here's what I can accomplish. I'm going to check this next thing off my list, right, to now my passion is knowing Jesus. That's what my life is about. Look what he says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. My old aspirations my old achievements and attributes, they're, they're rubbish. And so this is how I'm living now. This is what describes my life. My life, first, it's about wanting to know Jesus. Not, not know more about him. Well, I want to find out what it was like, you know, as he walked the streets of Nazareth or uh, hiked the, the hills of Judea or any of those things. It's not understanding that he was a historical figure. It's not enough to know about Jesus. And if you're here this morning and that's all you have is you know about Jesus, it's not enough to know about him. That's not what Paul is saying here. The word he uses speaks to know by experience. Paul had this life-changing experience with the Lord. And even though he had walked with him for 30 years, there's more to know. I want to know him more. More aspects of his life I want in mine. And so he desired this growing experiential knowledge of Jesus. I want to apply and know Jesus in more areas of my life. And I want to encourage you now again to say, is this part of your story? Is this part of your testimony? Because our story isn't just, this is what happened then. It's what's happening right now. Are we satisfied with how much we know Jesus? Are we satisfied with the experience of Jesus that we've had so far? And that's good. But are we keeping part of our life, part of our heart from him? Or can we say with Paul, I want to know him. I want to experience more of Jesus in my life. 
just more and more. Take over more area of this, of this old heart. And then Paul adds, I also, he wants to know the power of his resurrection. To know Jesus is to know the power of his resurrection. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead that we just celebrated on resurrection day and he conquered death. That power radically changed Paul's life and it changed him from a church persecutor that we just read about into a church planter and pastor. And so Paul has had his life changed by the power of the resurrection, but he wanted to further experience that resurrection power of Jesus in his life. We shouldn't be satisfied with what we celebrated two Sundays ago. We should want more of that resurrection power in our life. And then that's what he's getting at next when he says, share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And this is just, this is radical life-changing stuff here. Because we, we kind of hear on TV or something, you know, that, that really the, the power of the resurrection, right? You know, God's power in your life, it's going to manifest itself. We hear this all too often. You're going to be wealthy and healthy and all of those things. Paul, the power of the resurrection wasn't so that his life would just be all sunshine and rainbows and, and all of that. But to suffer well, I want to suffer well, he says. We're all going to suffer. Paul's going to suffer. Every single person in this room is going to have as more suffering in store for them. And Paul says, when I go through that suffering, I want to do it with Jesus. I want to share it with him. And this is that great word, if you've you've been students of the word koinonia. It's that intimate partnership, fellowship, a connectedness. I want that connectedness with Jesus. You ever gone through something really hard, really, really challenging? I've got a few things in my life that, man, it's just incredibly difficult, really hard stuff. And when you can have someone who understands that walk with you through that, or if you've been that person to someone else, so if you've been someone that, you know, has been, uh, has lost a spouse, to talk to someone else that's lost a spouse or whose husband abandoned them, whose maybe their, their kids as well are prodigals and you're just suffering through the pain of having a child walk away from the Lord or someone else that struggles with addiction. Oh, if you have someone that's been there in the trenches with you, if you can be that for someone, there is a bond there. It's real, it's powerful, and it's impacting. What Paul is saying, and I know that resonates with some of you, what Paul is saying, I want Jesus to be that person. I want to meet him in those places. I long for that connectedness with him, to experience him even in suffering. Because for Paul, I would rather suffer with Jesus and have that connectedness to them, rather than being, okay, hashtag blessed, and not have the Lord. It's better to suffer with Jesus. And he's like, okay, I get that. That makes sense. But then he has becoming like him in his death. And most of us would think, okay, I want the resurrection power. That sounds good. With me in suffering, absolutely, that sounds good. But conformed or you know, becoming like him in his death? Paul knows from experience that to have the, the risen from the dead power of Jesus in him. He, he knows what that is. And the ability to, to face those challenges that life has is because he has Jesus' resurrection power. Because the Lord has done that, because the Lord has already resurrected, like we just celebrated, he's like, that resurrection is going to guarantee my own. Like him in death, verse 11, he says, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This isn't a question of if I do, if I do experience this or if I will, I hope I'll experience the, the power of the, the, you know, the resurrection. It's a matter of how. This is logistics for him. Again, the New Living Translation puts it this way. One way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Death is a prerequisite of resurrection. And so Paul says, I, I don't know how I'm going to get there. 
But because the Lord has resurrection, it's guaranteed my own resurrection in my life. And so it could be, I'm going to get executed. Then I'll experience the resurrection someday. I could be lost at sea. It could be old age. I always say, you know, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of how I'm going to die. There's a big difference there, right? Like, I'm not afraid to die. I, for me, I don't want to be eaten. I just, I don't care what it is. I just don't want to die by being eaten by something. That's, once I'm dead, I'm not going to care. I just don't want to go that way. And Paul, one way or another, man, however I'm going to get there, I'm going to experience the resurrection from the dead one way or another. And since I'm in him and he's already triumphed over death and I'm in him and he's already raised from the dead, then he's guaranteed my resurrection as well. And this mindset, again, I I love this. When you you just stick back and, and look and you think about Paul's life, this mindset affected Paul in very dramatic ways. Paul wasn't Debbie Downer. He wasn't the guy who is just gloomy all the time. Look how bad my life is, right? I read the passage in Galatians, all of this. But he wasn't saying that to like, you better feel sorry for me. He's also not the guy who's so unrealistically happy all the time. Nothing bad is ever going to happen. Now, I'm not going to experience any pain in my life. He is a realist. But the promise of the resurrection is real. And so it enabled Paul to live for the future in the present. And as he's going to say in chapter 4 of this book, we're not going to get there today, is he says, that provides in my present difficulties a peace that passes understanding. I don't have to be gloomy. I don't have to pretend to be unrealistically joyful all the time, like everything's always going to go right. But I can, in the present, have a peace that passes understanding. Then verse 12, Paul, he wants to know, experience Jesus in life, in death, in resurrection. And then number four, Paul pursued Jesus' calling on his life. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I love this verse. This is, this is my verse. You want to know my verse? If I sign an email off, this is, this is my life verse right here. But Paul has a confession to make. I haven't reached the finish line. I, I, but I'm living in light of the resurrection and that frees me Because that's the hope I have. That's what I'm doing. It frees me to live all out for the Lord. To press on in the present. And so Paul is using these racing metaphors here. I'm not who I used to be. I'm not who I'm going to be. But I'm pressing on right now. I'm in process. And I want to be where Jesus wants me to be. And I want to be who Jesus wants me to be. And so I I pursue. I press on with great energy. Because he says, Jesus me Jesus made me his own. This is, this speaks of to seize, to grab, to take possession of. He says, Jesus grabbed me. He took possession of me on that Damascus road. He made me his own. I am his. And now what I want to do, you'll notice these, Jesus made me his own. I want to make it my own. Now I want to seize, grab take possession of what he has for me. He's grabbed hold of me. I want to grab hold of what he has for me. That's how I'm going to live my life. God has a purpose for my life. I want to see it come to fruition as a Christian. Sure. Yeah. I want to be more obedient. I want to be more trustworthy, more honest. I want to be more Christ-like. I want to be all of those things. There's a specificness to this. God has a calling on my life. I want that. What's God's calling on your life? Yes, it is to be more honest, more trustworthy, more Christ-like, more more pure. But man, for Paul, he's like, I'm a church planner. I'm an apostle. That's part of the calling God has in my life. It was to go to Rome. But but that's because he made me his own. And I'm realizing that. And you might have a plan in your life. This is a great passage. I didn't know that the students were going to be up here. But it's a great passage for these students. What's God calling you? What's his plan? Not what's your plan, what's his plan? Go after it and make it your own. And this, he says, was God's plan 
for his life. God, God loves me, he saved me, has eternity, eternity waiting for me, so I'm going to pursue what he has for me. I'm going to seize that. I'm going to grab hold of it. And how I'm going to do that is by forgetting and reaching. He says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul says this one thing I do. This one thing, forgetting the past and straining forward. That's one thing. That, that's this one thought. I'm forgetting that and I'm going this. I'm reaching. I'm stretching forward to what God has for me. What's your one thing? This is Paul's one thing. What's your one like mission? You know, mission statements. Write a personal mission statement. This is what my one thing in life. And every other decision and thing I'm going to do in life is going to be filtered through this one thing. This is a good place to be. Because as James would tell us, that a, 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 double, you know, a, um, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Man, if we can focus on this is the one thing, right? Benjamin Franklin is often misquoted as saying, Jack of all trades, master of none. But what he actually said was jack of all trades, master of one. I can do a lot of things, but I'm the master of one thing. And Paul says, hey, this one thing is Jesus. It's what Jesus has for my life. And so you might be sitting here, maybe tomorrow, you gotta go back to swinging a hammer, cleaning teeth, you know, forecasting the markets, driving truck, whatever that may be. He says, hey, I'm gonna have this one thing. You can do all of those things, but have this one thing, knowing this book, knowing what he has for my life. Have it take precedence over everything else that the Lord may have for you. Paul wasn't complacent. I'm going to reach and stretch and forget what is behind. Verse 14, I press more of this really vivid action imagery. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I understand you can't live your life, and this is good application for us too, can't live our life by looking over our shoulder and looking behind that. And so he's like, I, I was tied to all of these seven attributes. This, this was my life, but I released myself from the past. Maybe there's someone in here that needs to release themselves from the past. But I'm not going to look back. History has nothing for me in that sense. And I'm going to press towards what God has for me, not what God maybe did or how I was or any of those things. And then what he next he says, he encourages us to live for Jesus together. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Paul says to the church in, in Philippi, the church in coastline, think this way. Have this same attitude collectively. Have, have this mindset that true maturity isn't thinking we've reached our goal, but realizing we haven't, that we're running this race together collectively. Let's all get on board with this, he says. Let's do this together. Let's reach this common destination together and pursue that. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And again, one more time, the New Living Translation says, we must hold on to the progress that we have already made. Individually, corporately, don't lose ground. Don't drift, but press on. Go after what God has for you. Forget all the things in the past. The good, the bad, the in-between. Don't be distracted by the past. Forget everything that hinders you going forward with Jesus. Don't look back and get sidetracked. Don't, go back, don't look back like the Israelites, right? God freed them from Egypt, uh, but they looked back longingly at those days. They couldn't forget that what's behind. Don't be like Lot's wife, pulled out of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, but looking back at her old life. Don't do that. We, we hear about that all the time. Folks that look back on their old life, and instead of pursuing Jesus, they lay hold of what the world has to offer. Now, I'm going to stop here this morning. You can go on and read ahead and see what Paul's goal for the future is. It's keeping your eyes on the prize. And so in this chapter, he kind of lays out, here's my past. 
we focused on the present, and now here, from here to the rest of the chapter, man, here's here's the here's our future. He says, our citizenship, in verse 20, is in heaven. Man, and from where we await a Savior, Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus Christ. And so, he says, this is how I'm going to live. Join me in pressing in until Jesus calls us home, until we've crossed that finish line. And again, this, this pressing, moving forward, reaching, stretching, the goal, the prize. This is all action imagery. And Paul, in his mind... Has our Christian life, it's a race to him. And so what he's trying to say is no one's going to stumble. You can't get there by looking back. And no one's going to stumble into God's calling for their life. It needs to be intentional. It needs to be purposeful. And it needs to be run well. That's his encouragement for Philippi. That's his encouragement for you. Now, it, it may surprise you, but I'm not what people would call a runner, okay? Uh, 23 years ago, there, there was a... There's, how many runners are, are in here today? The people that, that like to run? Okay, good. So maybe this name rings a bell for you. There's a Moroccan 23 years ago named Hashim El Garouche who ran the mile, get this, in three minutes, 43 seconds, 43.3. It's the current world record for the mile, Okay? But probably the most famous mile runner ever was a man by the name of Roger Bannister. And historically, if you look at the world record times, they started to keep a track of these things in like 1850. Tracking the time for the mile has been around a long, long time. And every few years, like most world records, they would improve. Here's the world record would be broken. It would be broken. It would be broken. And so it would improve every couple years. But in the 1940s and the 1950s, it got stuck on four minutes, 0.01, 4.01 for a long time. That's what it was, 4.01. And the thought was, well, humans can't just keep going faster and faster. There's a limit to this. So that barrier for the mile, it must be four minutes. It's just impossible. And this was psychological. People just couldn't get past that. You can't run past, faster than a four-minute mile. But on May 6th, we're almost to the anniversary, in 1954, this Englishman, Roger Bannister, he broke through that four-minute barrier. And he ran the mile in 3.59.4 seconds. But... But when he broke this record, it wasn't in a competitive race. It was just him out on the track. He had some people pacing with him, but it wasn't in a competitive race. And, and, and Bannister said, I had done it, but the real test was to do it when it mattered in a real race. And he was get his chance. That record that he broke there, that four minute mile was in May of that year. In June, the next month, an Australian by the name of John Landy actually beat his time. That psychological barrier was down. And so now, one, two, there was another one. And he actually beat his time. He ran the mile in three minutes, 0.58 seconds. And in August, May, June, August, they were going to face each other at what was called the Empire Games. It's called the Commonwealth Games today. It was called the Empire Games in Vancouver, B.C., and the world was watching. For, for most of us, track, not, not a huge deal. Okay, it was then. This was one of the most anticipated sporting events of all time. Because this barrier had been broken. No one can beat it. And now there's two guys back to back within you know less than two months of each other. And now here we are another month and a half away. And they're racing against each other. And so the buildup for this race was incredible. It was so anticipated. They, they built it the miracle mile before they even got on the track that these two guys were going to race. And it's still one of the most famous races of all time. And from the moment the gun sounded, Landy, the Australian, the new world record holder, was in the lead. And he led the entire race race. 
But the way that the sun was shining is that when he would make a lap and he would get to that fourth corner and come back, the way the sun was shining, he could look over his left shoulder and see the shadows of his competitors. And so every time he'd make that lap, I'm, I'm losing him. I'm losing him. He stretched out his lead in this miracle mile to 12 yards in the third lap. Huge lead. But Bannister pressed on. He pressed on and pressed on. And he closed the gap in the last lap. And that 12 yards became nine. And the nine became seven. And the seven became three. And they finally, they made this fourth turn and they're headed for the straight and Landy in the lead who's led the entire race he hears footsteps behind him and so just like he had done three times previously he looked over his left shoulder for Bannister's shadow and there's the picture of it at that exact moment Bannister pressed on even harder and passed him on his right and by the time he looked back forward He was watching Bannister leave him in the dust. He wasn't there. Bannister kept his lead until they crossed the finish line. Now, if you are a runner, which I am not, Landy is a lesson for all of us, right? Don't look back. Press on, go forward, right? And at the the PNE, uh, I used to live pretty close to Vancouver. The PNE, it's uh, the Pacific National Exhibit. It's like a fairgrounds. It's open all year round. They, they actually have this moment immortalized. They made a statue of this this moment right here. How'd you like that right there? Years later, Landy joked, "Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt for looking back. I'm probably the only one ever turned to bronze for looking back." <laughs> But listen to what Roger Bannister did, the one who pressed on. And it's almost as though he had this very passage in mind. He said, with five yards to go, the finishing line seemed to almost recede. Those last few seconds seemed an eternity. The faint line of the finishing tape stood ahead as a haven of peace after the struggle. So I leapt at the tape like a man taking his last desperate spring to save himself from a chasm that threatens to engulf him. It's a little dramatic. But this is how Paul says we should approach the Christian life. Don't look back. The resurrected Savior that we just celebrated and sang about and filled this room with lives inside of you. And he's the one setting the pace. He's the one that has claimed you for his own. And your response, like Paul, is to say, and then I want to lay hold of that for my life. I'm going to keep pressing on. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm going to keep pressing on until I cross my finish line and the Lord will call me to him because that's where my citizenship is. That's where I belong. Guys, we live in a world that is competing for our attention. The footsteps are constantly behind us. Look back. Look back. Don't press forward. Guys, I want to encourage you. Most of you don't know me. You've never met me. That's fine. It doesn't matter. I want to encourage you as brothers and sisters to keep pressing on. Keep going for what the Lord has for you. This is Paul's testimony. This is his story. Would you make it your own? I'm not going back. I'm pressing on for what Jesus has for me. Amen? I mean, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for this testimony of, of Paul. I thank you, Lord, that by your spirit, you impressed upon him to share it with that church. And now, Lord, by extension, it's shared with this church and with these individuals and myself, Lord. And I pray that this would be our testimony. Lord, some of the specifics might be different, but I pray that this fellowship is filled, Lord, And filling and overflowing with those who are going to keep pressing on and keep laying hold of that for which you have laid hold of them. 
I thank you, Father. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Keep your spirit moving among them, I pray. And I ask this again, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thanks, Tad. I'm going to go ahead and have the worship team come up here. And uh, I think that it's hard not to respond to a message like that, right? That was epic, an awesome exhortation to keep pressing on. Something that I think we need to be continually reminded of as followers of Jesus. And as he was going through this chapter... Um, it was just ringing real true to me and to something that the Lord was already kind of um, ministering to me personally. A, a similar uh, thought, of the, the theme of this book being rejoicing. And if you know anything about Paul's circumstances in this uh, time in his life, he's sitting in a Roman prison, uh, very likely awaiting his a death sentence. And he spends a whole letter talking about rejoicing, encouraging the church to rejoice in circumstances that he was facing that you would think, you know, there's nothing really to rejoice in. And he's just sitting there talking about it over and over again. And at the beginning of this very chapter, what does he say there? He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on to say why we can rejoice in the Lord. And he's talking about, you know, what Tad was telling us, how what his old life used to look look like. You know, I, I, I took all of my hope or I, I tried to find all of my rightness, how people viewed me or, you know, like feeling like I was right myself or trying to get these achievements and trying to find fulfillment in these things. And all they led to was disappointment. And in Christ, I found everything I was looking for. That's, that's what I was looking for all along, and I've realized that now. And so now, for me, to live is just to know Christ and follow him. That's what I'm straining for. I'm not straining for any of these other things, because they were not what I needed. It's all Christ, and my life is about following him, even if that means suffering, because I know that ultimately, in that suffering, I'm going to get to experience that resurrected life to an even greater degree. So whatever he has for me, that's my life. And the reason for it is, because this is truly where I can be joyful. Even in the hard things with Christ, in Christ, I can be joyful. And I did not have that joy in my life before. And as I was sharing with the Ecola students earlier this week, Nehemiah tells us in Nehemiah 8, to some people that were struggling with discouragement, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not in your circumstances that are discouraging you. Yet they're hard. But guess what? Christ who is for you or the Lord who is for you because you're his people, that's where your joy lies. So stop looking at these things. Stop trying to find fulfillment. Stop trying to find satisfaction. Stop trying to achieve things in your own power and just cling to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Follow the Lord in what he has and you will find joy. And it'll be a strength because it is what keeps you going forward. It's what gives you a purpose for your life. It's what gives you meaning. It's what gives you significance. It is where you will find the strength to persevere and endure right through this life, right into the next. So that's why that's such a powerful reminder for us today. Because you might be here today and you might be like the old Paul, the person that's trying to find some sort of fulfillment, some sort of rightness in your eyes or in others eyes or some sort of satisfaction in something in this world in your job in possessions in relationships whatever it can be a multitude of different things but you just keep experiencing disappointment you experience dissatisfaction you you aren't achieving what you are looking for you don't have that joy and today the Lord would be telling you that's because it's in me. I made you to know me. And you can do that through faith in Jesus Christ today. For the rest of us, it is so easy to stay in that old life or to revert back to it. I think of how the disciples after Jesus, you know, appeared to them from the grave and he told them to go to the Galilee area. I was just reading this in the Gospels, how 
They must have got antsy and tired of waiting. And what do they do? They go back to the old things. They go back to fishing. And they catch nothing. That's how we can be. We can kind of just revert to the old things. We get antsy. We, those are what's familiar with us. We go back to them. We look for some type of fulfillment that we never, ever found in the first place. And we just go back to them. And what happens? We, there's nothing there. And then Jesus, he's on the shore. And he's like, cast your net on the other side. Oh, we've been fishing all night. We didn't get anything. Just, just do it. And they get so many fish, they can barely get them to shore, right? And when they get to shore, when Peter realizes it's, it's, it's the Lord, he, he runs ashore, you know, or swims ashore. He doesn't wait. And when he gets there, Jesus is already cooking a bunch of fish. He already had what they were looking for in the first place. And that's how it is. We need to be reminded, like, we're not going to find what we're looking for in this world. God has saved us out of this world and given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. So therefore, we don't strain for anything but him, to stay close to him, to stay connected to him. That's that's our one mission. That's our one focus you know, in everything we do. Amen? And so today's that opportunity, if, if we know we're not in that place, to do exactly what Tad was exhorting us to in, in this time of response, just say, Lord... Man, I know that my focus is not just on you. And I feel the results of that. I lack joy. I lack fulfillment. Lord, you have saved me from all of the multitude of things that can be a distraction that were a waste of my time, just like you did, Paul. And I want my focus just on you. I I just want to know you. I want to be in your will for me. So, Lord, I, I just help me do that. Help me stay in that place. May I strain for you and you alone. So that your joy can be in me and be my strength to keep going. Amen. So we're going to have our prayer team around the room. If you need prayer for something specific, come up so we can pray with you on that. Otherwise, just right where you're at, just talk to the Lord, do business. He's here and he's more than willing to help if you ask. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for that exhortation. Thank you for that reminder. Thank you for that example in Paul who found everything he was looking for in you. And we all fall into that same category. And if there's people here that haven't done that yet, you've done everything possible to make them right with you through your son's death. The, the just payment for our sins, the required price for our sins was paid for in full on that cross so that if they believe that, if they receive that, if they acknowledge that they are not perfect, Just like Paul understood, he was not perfect in all those things he thought he could do to somehow earn rightness with you. He understood he couldn't. They just failed him. If we acknowledge that to you and we ask for that free gift of salvation, that gift of forgiveness, believing that Jesus died for our sin, you will give it to us. You will forgive us of all our sins, past, present, future, and make us right with yourself. And you will come into our life and help us know your good, pleasing, and perfect will and help us live and carry it out where we will experience that same fulfillment that Paul did, that same joy that Paul had. You've given us the one direction, Lord, and it's you, Jesus. And we all want to be in that place of just following you and knowing you, just like Paul. In Jesus' name, amen.